Our next presenter is Frank Holmes. <coughs> Pardon me, Frank Holmes. He's the um, CEO of U.S. Global Investors. Uh, he's not only a, a brilliant resources investor and and uh, pardon me, entrepreneur in the natural resource space. He sort of mastered the universe of uh, natural resources funds. But he's also a very uh, uh, flamboyant, I would say, and uh, fun-loving guy. Uh, please cue the video for him. With so much drama in the LBC, it's kind of hard being Snoop the old double G. But I, somehow, someway, keep coming up with funky ass sh like every single day. May I kick a little something for the G's and make a few ends as I breeze through two in the morning and the party's still jumping because mom ain't home. They got bitches in the living room getting it on and they ain't leaving till six in the, six morning. In the morning. So what you want to do, sh I got a pocket full of rubbers and my old boys do too. So turn off the lights and close the doors. But, but what? We don't love them hoes. Yeah. So we go smoke and ounce to this. She's up, hose down while your mother f bounce to this. Rolling down the street, smoking and dough, sipping on gin and juice. Laid back with my mind on my money and my money on my mind. Welcome, everyone. If you don't think money is important, <laughs> stop making payments and you'll see how many people call you. And they say that money is not important. Just think of how often your kids want to stay in touch with you. <laughs> so it is all about the money. And what I find so fascinating with this suit is what Will Ferrell wore on the music awards. And what makes me laugh about the suit is that I wear nice suits, Prada suits, etc. No one wants to come up and touch me. <laughs> but with this suit on, I activate the reptilian minds. And what we just witnessed was your, your brilliant mind, the part of the brain, the cerebral part of your brain which you have to think. Now, this suit is to activate that reptilian mind. So in my presentation today, I'm going to try to walk with you around the world and all my travels. And uh, it is ongoing, and there's always been traveling that makes it, for me, life is most exciting. Meeting new people, hearing about new cultures, new issues, and with all the calamities in the world, with the 30, what they call the uh, 32nd latitude um, parallel line, or meridian line, is Israel to Ukraine. And all the challenges, the market still went on to all-time highs. How is this taking place? Hopefully I can show you where this money is going because they're printing a lot of it. And it's important to see and not to get caught up with what the negativity is, but where is the money going and how do you make money with it? So at U.S. Global, we're very proud of winning many awards for resources, for gold investing, active managers, emerging markets. And we've also won many awards for education. And I highly recommend, if you're not a subscriber, to, to log on to usfunds.com and subscribe to Frank Talk and the Investor Alert. We publish it every Friday. It's written by investment team professionals, edited by journalists. So we have a complete thought process that goes into getting something out on that same day. 
and we're very proud of it, and it helps me to travel to be in touch with my investment team in addition to sending back what I need to think about for the weekly investor alert. So concepts. There are important concepts to appreciate, and I've written special articles on this on the website, of understanding tipping points, inflection points, melting points. George Soros uses this, this sort of concept, which he learned at the University of um, London School of Economics, and it was, I believe, Karl Popper was the professor that said you have to look for that quantum leap or that melting point that creates that melt, that, that differential, spectacular movement. And that's where a discovery of a new gold mine can unleash tremendous amounts of capital. The growth is exponential. The same thing with technology. It's exponential, it's not linear. But we always look at fund performance as a linear line. I'm making 3%, I'm making 6%, I'm making 22, I'm making 30. All great success economically is exponential. It's not linear. And all great losses are the inverse, the square root. If something goes from 3 to 27, it takes the square root, it's going back. It's to recognize that in, in, in the world of investing and how much risk you're taking. So when we look at this simple metaphor and treat money like H2O, water goes through three stages. And at those stages, all it is is one temperature difference. So you can have demographics can be an inflection point of 32 degrees from ice to water. You can have government policies can create an inflection point. Innovation and discoveries. It's the ability to sit back and say, I believe that this is an inflection point. I should take my money off the table or I should lean into it and put more money into that investment. It's recognizing these inflection points is what I love to do because I just love being curious and asking myself, is this or not an inflection point? Can this new CEO create change that is exponential? So when we look at the big picture of the world, things that, that used to take centuries, centuries now take decades. A billion people on earth took centuries and now it's gone through that in sweet spot, that inflection point. When we think of the, the crash of 1929, as the visual shows you, there were only two billion people. By the time we land on the moon, there's three billion people. And by, we, by the time we hit Y2K, there's six billion people, now there's seven billion people. And we are all here listening to me, and the other half of the world, there's 100 million people having sex. And they're going to populate nine months a million babies. And they're going to do it tomorrow, and they did it yesterday. And just to recognize the sheer magnitude of a million screaming babies. And what's different is they're all hooked up. They're wired. This is so disruptive. I remember when I first went around traveling the world, it used to be CNN. CNN grew through 100 million people around the world watching CNN. And then it grew to 250 million. And then BBC came out. And that was the way people were able to communicate before the internet came along. And they created tipping points. It created revolutions in countries because people could see things. Like my first time in 92 going down the Mekong River in Vietnam and seeing thatch roofs basically with a satellite outside and they're watching BBC. That was the revolution of information and now it's even more profound and significant. And you can see here that neither Russia nor China, they have their own Facebooks. It's, it's huge, and they all want 
our dream. And it's just a matter of time that this will take place and evolve. So think of this. Every American child will consume approximately 3 million pounds of minerals, metals, and fuels during their lifetime. And unlike previous cycles, they couldn't, and most of the world, understand what we have. They all know it. Instagram. If you want to talk about the change in, in economic, though, we, we always hear this, this disparity of wealth, this disparity that it's just not fair. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and it's disparity. What happens when five people make a billion dollars, and it's called Instagram? And now they figure that Facebook did a spectacular acquisition, and it's worth about $7 billion. And what happens when 54 people get together, and they create another technological breakthrough? I can go on with the list of them that very few, a handful of people, have made billions of dollars, which totally distorts the wealth creation that makes the top 1%, 10% look like they're just getting richer and richer. It's this disruptive technology. The disruptive technology is creating a new revolution. And we see it with, you, with Uber. And I know in the mutual fund business, I feel like I'm being Uberized by ETFs. So Uber is now going to hook up with Facebook. How is this going to change? Unions, in particular in Europe and in other cities, are turning around protesting to, to stop this, this process of taking place. But it is taking place. And it is unlocking intellectual capital. It is giving people hope and dreams. In India, my first time in India with my good friend, um, he, I believe, where is Mr. Sharif? Is he back there? He gave me a wonderful tour. I think he's back there. And there he is in the corner over there. Very special person. I would go to the mornings, I would run through the streets and couldn't believe the poverty. And I go back 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, and I was there only nine months ago. It's a huge revolution that you've seen economically. And everyone's wired and everyone's hooked up. And they all, too, want to have this dream. And now Bollywood has become so successful that Bollywood was held here in Vancouver last year. It rotates around the world. Like Hollywood is only in L.A., Bollywood goes around the world. That is the huge change that is taking place. And it's important for you to recognize that when you go to India, there's 600 million kids under 25 to Americas. And they're all hooked up like slumdog millionaires. And if you haven't seen the movie, I highly recommend it. It's all about faith and hope. Hope for something better, no matter what the tragedy was for those two boys. There's always something better. That is the American dream. And we have sent that American dream around the world. So now we take this big change. Now we can turn around and take it for those melting points, those tipping points. Let's look at government policy, which looks so complex and so many moving parts when actually is binary. Government policy is either monetary fiscal. Monetary is interest rates and money supply. Fiscal is tax and spend, corporately, individually. Once you get through all the political rhetoric, it's easy to try to understand changes taking place. And now how does that relate for us? We like to look at the G7 countries and compare them to the E7 countries, what we like to call the seven most populated countries in the world, and we see something that's significant here. Take a look at that number. 50% of the world's wealth 
is only coming from 11% of the population. See the reverse? See where 50% of the population is only 23% of the world's GDP. There's a huge rotation, so it makes it easy for me to look and compare money supply, interest rates, and take any other country in the world and fit them into the most populated countries or the strongest economic forces of the world. And there's an intellectual arbitrage that takes place to understand government policies. But what's happened in the past, since 2011? The governments have been printing money, and the monetary base has been rising, and it's been flowing into the stock market. It hasn't been flowing into emerging markets. It's not been flowing like we thought would go into gold. And you can see it's because of all the regulatory rules. President Obama does not have a, have a war against Syria. He's not going to have a war against Russia. He has a war against capitalism. And the, the methodology to have the war against capitalism and bankers and everything else to deal with it is just more regulations, and more regulations is another form of taxation. And that's just their model, and just to understand it, but that money is still flowing, and many people have missed one of the greatest stock market moves ever. The greatest presidential election cycle has been under President Obama. Hard to believe that. Unbelievable wealth creation. So my job is to help you understand, follow the money. Where's the money going? Where's the intellectual capital going? And right now we're seeing that real global GDP has declined and money supply, and I'll be speaking later, and I'll give more details in my further two presentations. Today's an intense day, intense day of three presentations, and each one I will drill down deeper and deeper for those who are coming. But money supply here you see rising by the four biggest economies, and what you do see is that all of a sudden money velocity is not rising because it's hard to get a loan. If it's hard to get a loan, then money supply doesn't rise rapidly. The government can go and put as much money in all the banks they want. They can make money as cheap as they want. But if there's a loan that doesn't take place, then you don't get money supply rising. If you really look for inflation, then you have to have money velocity increasing. You need this inflation element. So I always like to show this visual. Don't focus on the political party. Focus on the policies. Because under President Clinton, we had real interest rates 2% above inflation. And we had fiscal policy that went after deadbeat dads and streamlined welfare. And he unleashed the internet. And he deregulated telecommunication. It's the complete opposite today. It's all about, there's not a rule or regulation the government didn't like. So it's recognizing what does that do to money flows. Look at this visual. I'm trying to portray to you what the average presidential election cycle is. And you can see the four-year presidential election cycle is usually, as you can see, the blue to gray. But look under President Obama and look at this cycle also. Money is flowing into the stock market. And what's been coming out is that central banks have actually been buying stocks. We've seen this, first of all, is disclosed in Switzerland. Where were they going to put their low interest rates? They could turn around and buy S&P futures and convert them into shares. So you're seeing them diversify because every time there's been a big inflation or a big currency devaluation, Mark Weber has spoken about this many times a year later, real estate and stocks all rebound back up. It's those owning debt are the ones that get hurt, hurt the most. And look at this, follow the money. Most money has gone into bonds. Retail investors have put record amounts of money into bonds out of fear of the stock market and gold. But gold has still outperformed bonds. Now, what has taken place with all these rules and regulations is the formation of capital changes. 
And what we're witnessing here in this visual, you can see the peak, pink peaking in 2007, was record stock buybacks. So companies are increasing their dividends and buying back their stock because, in fact, there's less shares outstanding overall for the S&P 500. And that means the stock market trades higher. And you've also seen with all this anti-stock options that boards have turned around and repositioned. They grant stock to executives, not stock options. You can see this visual is showing you that there's been more stock grants given than stock options. And guess what happens when you get a stock grant? If I'm the CEO of Coca-Cola and I increase the dividend, but I don't get my stock for five years, I get the dividend today. Today. It's in my best interest to raise the dividend. My income doesn't show up as rising income in my 10Ks and, and et cetera. But my dividend income shows up substantially, which is not out to the public. And therefore, many companies can keep salaries low, but turn around and have big dividends and increase the dividends. And rather than taking the risk of building a billion dollar plant in Austin, they'll turn around and Intel will turn around and take a billion dollars and buy back their stock because it therefore increases the value per share of earnings. I believe it's better interest. My belief you and I, as investors in these companies that are buying back their stock and increasing their dividends, is in the best interest, unless they can truly go show where they can invest for substantial growth. And the formation of capital is disruptive is with ETFs. And it's also regulatory. I have the best performing uh, short-term tax-free fund. Newsweek just commented, I can't tell you. I can't put it in writing. They don't want you to communicate if you have a five-star portfolio. They just don't want that. ETFs, you can advertise on taxi cabs in New York City. So you're seeing this not just a regulatory, it's just the overall market has shifted and changed. And if you're a Canadian, you can't buy an American mutual fund, but you can buy an ETF. And if you're an American, you, can, you can't buy a Canadian mutual fund, but you can buy the Canadian ETF. That's how capital markets have morphed, and this is a big detriment to junior mining companies. Because where are they going to get the capital from? If active gold fund managers aren't getting fund flows, then they're not going to invest. So all of a sudden, you're seeing it's more and more difficult for many of these companies to raise capital. And this is my company. I'll speak about it more often. Grow is public. It's, it's a company that runs, that I am a controlling shareholder of, and it's highly responsive to gold. Gold rallies this year, as you can see, I will outperform all the other asset managers, et cetera. That's the reflexology that takes place with grow. And we're above that uh, 50 days above the 200-day moving average. So today, when, at 1.30, I'll be speaking. The trend is your friend, and I'm going to go into more detail regarding these trends. But let me just give you a, a brief overview of some of these significant and profound trends to watch. This is a short, we had a short-term headwind just get reversed. And it's what's called PMI, Purchasing Manufacturers Index. If you don't know what it is, write it down. Go to our website. We have written about it extensively. We make it easy to appreciate and understand. When we look at commodities, so often people look at industrial production, which is a subset of GDP. Industrial production is the past. PMI is the future. So what you're looking for is a trend where purchasing manufacturers believe that they're going to be manufacturing more cars, they're going to be manufacturing more airplanes, more equipment. And so therefore they need more metals, they need more energy. So it's a forecast of what their confidence is. And it's a very highly accurate 
using probability analysis tool to look at the demand pent up for commodities, especially when it comes to from the emerging countries. So Japan unraveled in April, global PMIs because of the sheer size of Japan fell, all the commodities fell in April, it's amazing to see, and PMIs turned, so now the global PMI where the one month is above the three months is a positive trend. In China's flash PMI, it turned positive, and what's interesting in the leadership is the leader of China, unlike the leader of, uh, in, in America, he follows three significant indicators to measure the, the growth of the economy because they believe that financial stability is most important and job creation. So these, he's been able to have his own index. That would be an important factor for overall economic activity if other countries in the world, their leaders looked at similar indexes. But it allows us to turn around to understand how he thinks. And this visual is showing you, as investors, what is the probability if the global purchases manufacturers index, if the one month number is above the three month number, what happens to commodities? What happens to the sectors? There's an 80% probability of rising. Now we see Europe, even with all the drama with Putin, European, European countries as a whole have turned positive. And oil stocks are spectacularly cheap. And our next speaker will com comment about some of these energy names. But I'm gonna share with you that they go back to prices, when you look at price to book, to when oil was $10 a barrel. Why would anyone buy a five-year government bond offering you a 1.6% yield when you can buy the S&P energy stocks with a 2% yield as a hedge for inflation and global economic activity? When takeovers are, are, are being implemented in this space, they're 100% takeovers. That's how cheap energy stocks are. And global oil demand, as soon as we have the PMIs positive, we see this demand rising. And we see now that since 2010-11 period, China now surpasses the U.S. in importing oil. The other key factor is that America since that time period has had another disruptive technology, fracking. And it's made America so competitive, especially for manufacturing. When you look at manufacturing companies, the key component is energy. The cost of energy is approximately 35%. And once you have to go pay for a kilowatt hour in Germany versus America, it's one-third the cost. And in Germany, it only looks like it's going to trade higher. So cheap input gas, natural gas, falling, filing lots of natural gas is a significant strength to our economy. Now, what about OPEC? Can OPEC turn on the, the tap? and flood the world with oil. Not so. This visual is to show you their capacity to flood the world with oil with rising oil prices is quite limited. And 50% of the world's oil supply comes from Russia. And guess who's been supporting anti-fracking? Putin and his gang. It's well documented. And in, in, in Qatar, in the Middle East, they've also funded films to basically anti-fracking because their whole economic engine is the largest natural gas reserves in the world is exporting LNG to the rest of the world. So one has to be cognizant of what it, where's this media, where's this spin coming from, who's paying for it? Now what I love about China is how responsive. Students turned around and were protesting on the pollution. 
And Robert Freeland did a great job in presenting to all of you about the pollution index is not just in Beijing, it's also been in Paris, it's been in London with diesel, and the significance of platinum and palladium. But when we look at China, how fast China responded to solar energy, and solar energy stocks have had a spectacular run for the past three years. China's gone from 3% to 30% of the world's solar consumption. Natural gas, so bearish a year ago. And it's remarkable to see what we like to call the golden cross, where the 50-day moving, moving average goes above the 200-day moving average, with the trend is your friend. And here we have, it's gone positive, it's remained positive, it can come down and correct short term, but there are spectacular opportunities in this space. And North American natural gas, oh, it's terrible. Look how cheap it is compared to Europe oil and Europe Asian gas and European natural gas. Well, guess what? You want to be long chemical stocks. Chemical stocks are up 250% in the past three years. And if you looked at refineries, they're up 400%. So what do they need? They need natural gas, that's the input to Toronto to have a product which they sell to emerging markets, the final product. So in my global travels, in going around the world, I've noticed that there's lots of rain in certain areas of the world. In other places, there's droughts. And what I noticed that in Panama, where there's lots of rain, the Latin American weather casters always look like this. And they look like this because they're always talking about the rain is going away, the sun is coming out, it's gonna be a great day. This is what we see in San Antonio and the local uh, television, Channel 3, I believe it's, this is weather. Now, this is why there's no rain in the Middle East. <laughs> These are some of my cultural experiences that I want to try to share with you in globetrotting around the world. So gold, I've written a book on gold, I comment on gold, but I'm a big advocate that you should have 5% in gold jewelry, go, buy, go, go to Istanbul, take a holiday, and buy some gorgeous jewelry, go to the Middle East, you can buy spectacular, India, low markup, Asia, and the other 5% in good gold stocks, good gold active fund managers. I will speak later today at 3.20 at the gold workshop and I will go into much more detail but let me try to, in a quick overview, help you understand gold. The two drivers, fear trade, love trade. Fear trade, love trade. What drives fear? Monetary policy, fiscal policy. You're looking for the melting point where ice goes to water. And the other one that's really easy to watch is CNBC when Simon Hobbs is interviewing anyone on gold. It's called the Hobdicator. And he has been attacking me on gold. I remember when gold went to 300 from 250 in England and went to 400 to 500, and then he moved over to New York. And he just loves to bash gold, especially after it's been down for a couple of quarters. And he'll bash me and other people. But he's spectacular because he goes off on, on, on and bizarre conversations and, and allegations on, towards gold. And I just think he's just too cheap to buy any gold jewelry. But... Gold is up 20% since the last time I had the opportunity to go on his program. Inflection points for gold and money, money to gold is 2%. Whenever the U.S. government, central bank will pay you 2% over these, their, their bonds, which is above the inflationary rate, gold becomes unattractive. Anytime it's declining, 
where it becomes negative real interest rates, gold rises. So this is to show you in the visual. I'll have more time later today to, to discuss this with you, but it's a very simple. Going back in 2011, we were minus 200 basis points in owning US government bonds. We went to plus 50 basis points in December. Gold fell. Since then, there's gone negative interest rates. Gold has rallied. This is another simple visual we've published on usfunds.com trying to educate people and inform them. It's not that difficult and allows you to have more curiosity about moving and making decisions in capital markets. There's a great shift taking place with gold. Big, fat, juicy bricks are being sent over to Switzerland. They get refined into little bars and then they go to China. And there's been record gold movement that's taking place. And the other part is platinum, platinum palladium. We're very long platinum palladium. It's in my top 10% holdings. Why? Russia's the largest supplier and Putin is playing his games. But cars, it's cheaper now to buy a car and with the, with the use for catalytic converters, there's a record number of old cars on the road and car sales remain robust in North America and in Asia. And when Europe turns that corner, then you, we believe that you'll see platinum plating prices much higher. So the opportunities in gold as I end the presentation is the love trade. The love trade is the most important part of the trade. Gold went to 1900 because of the love trade. And the correlation to rising GDP in emerging markets and the demand for gold is like 90%. And since 2011, GDP per capita in China and India has been going flat or, or slightly down. It's not in this 45 degree angle. This year, it's forecast for the next 12 months to be rising. And this is just more evidence of what happens with rising GDP per capita in other nations that have an affinity for gold, they buy more gold. And it's all associated with holidays. And right now, you are in the season for gold. Historically, it bottoms every June, July, and runs to Chinese New Year. So later today, my time is up, I believe. I, I was commenting that when I went on to talk to uh, CNBC, that only three times in three decades did gold stocks fall for three years in a row. So mathematically, the probability in December for gold stocks to rise was great. And I've always advocated this 10% rule. Guess what? Last year, the stock market was spectacular. You would have cashed in, you would have bought gold stocks, and you would have been up huge this year. That's the importance, and if you put this, use this rule of 10% in gold stocks and 90% in the S&P, you're still ahead, even after three years the gold stocks have been down, if I go back since the year 2000 investing this model. If I go back further, it still works. So the idea of having gold exposure is prudent. And this is also showing you that gold stocks were trading at 24 times cash flow in 2007. And the bear cycle was so great, it went down to four times cash flow. I believe that that's turned. And I believe for many reasons, because these gold money companies have, have more verbs and adjectives than nouns. And they're always hyping you. And they fail to actually deliver the production they're going to say, and it's forecast for the next five years, shrinking mine supply. This, which companies get their balance sheets in shape, is very good for gold stocks. And this is showing you another visual, the year-over-year -year rolling, going back over 10 years, and gold stocks were at an extreme low when I went on CNBC and I was articulating in December that we were due for a big rally, a substantial rally, and we've been seeing it. We are not overbought. We have a lot more in front of us to look forward towards. And these are our gold funds, UNWPX. We've outperformed the GDXJ, 
And then for cash, we like to tell investors that put their money, consider our near-term tax-free. It's not had a down year, and it's very short, stable, $2. And this is a classic about having this balanced perspective. That's the S&P. And not since 2000 is the S&P, if I put $100,000 in the S&P in 2000, and I put it in my tax-free only in this past quarter has the S&P surpassed. But it's had tremendous volatility. This is why I advocate that you have money in a short-term fund like this. When gold falls, stock markets fall, you get to average down because the power meme reversion will always help you. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And I look forward to hearing you later today, seeing you later today and hearing your questions. I always, I always like to end on a note that it's so important to be thankful. And when we are thankful, that means we are thoughtful, we are mindful. And MIT has come out with very compelling research that the better investors take time to be thoughtful and mindful, and that's why they're better investors. And part of that process is to be thankful. And thank you all for tolerating my veg vegetable suit, I was told earlier, for listening to the presentation and being here today. Thank you very much.